There was a man who heard the Bible as it was being read aloud. And though this man had not yet trusted in Jesus, his Savior, he recognized the power of the word. And he said, I will tell you this, whoever made my heart wrote that book. And I want us to have that confidence as we turn one more time to the book of Ephesians this morning. We're going to be in chapter 6. It's our last message in this series. As we open the Bible, we are opening to the book of the one who made our hearts. The one who made our hearts wrote this book. And he is able to transform our hearts and lives as we read it and hear it together. So let's praise God for the power of his word as we read from verse 14 of Ephesians 6 to the end of the chapter. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now here is our text for today. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. Tychicus, our dearly loved brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me so that you may be informed. I'm sending him to you for this very reason, to let you know how we are and to encourage your hearts. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace. Be with all who have undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for how you have spoken to us these last seven months in the book of Ephesians. You have shown us wonderful things, and there is so much more to be seen. So we pray today, Lord, that you would do the work of God by the Spirit of God in the hearts of us, the people of God. We pray that we would see that there is above and you are able to do above and beyond all that we could ask or imagine. We pray that you would be transforming us into greater faith and strength as we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in his name. Amen. This past week, Kate and I had a great honor and privilege of attending a promotion ceremony For a man we've known for the last 20-some years, I performed the wedding of his wife uh, to him back in 1999. And he's been serving in the U.S. Army throughout that time. 
with great valor and distinction. Uh, he went to Iraq and to Afghanistan, and he served in the Pentagon. And on Friday, we went to this ceremony at the Rock Island Arsenal. And it was held in this home called Quarters One, which is the second largest home owned by the U.S. government next to the White House, overlooking the Mississippi River. And this man was promoted to the rank of colonel. And it was very moving to see the way the military honored him. And he was given a special honor that the U.S. Congress had to vote on to give this man. It, has not, it hasn't been conferred on anyone in the Army since the Civil War era. So this was just an amazing experience to stand in this promotion ceremony among these people in uniform who have sacrificed so much for our freedoms. And at the end of the ceremony, there was a cake cutting, and they handed Colonel Douglas Moore a Union sword from the Civil War era. And he took that sword, and he had uh, two men on either side of him who had fought with him in Iraq, and he cut the cake with this Union sword. I was so moved by the whole experience, especially since I've been preaching on the full armor of God these last few weeks. And it reminded me that God is saying to each of us in his church that you are a warrior for Jesus Christ. You are a soldier in the army of Jesus Christ. And God has given you a sword for this battle. As we look at the armor that God's been providing for us, we're noticing a change in verse 17. We're moving from protective armor to a weapon that God places in our hands in verse 17. This weapon is for us to move forward into enemy, enemy territory on offense. We're moving from defense to offense. And for this battle, God puts this sword in our hands, the sword, which is the word of God. And he also gives us another weapon in verses 18 through 20, and it's the weapon of prayer. These are our weapons for spiritual warfare, the word of God and prayer. Now, if I was the devil, I'd try to do all I could to get you to distrust the power of these weapons. I'd want to tell you your sword is broken. It won't work. I'd scheme to plant critical thoughts in your mind about the Bible, to plant skepticism in your heart about the word of God, to cause you to doubt its authority and its power and its efficacy. But Jesus, who is the commander of our of, of us in this army, Jesus said in John 10, 35, Scripture cannot be broken. And if I was the devil, I'd tell you, your sword is dull. It's irrelevant. It's out of date in this 21st century. No one's going to be interested in it. But God tells us in Hebrews 4, verse 12, that the word of God is living and it is active and it is sharper than any double-edged sword. And it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And it judges and it reveals the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is a living weapon that God gives his church. And if I was the devil, I'd keep the church so busy in all our activities and so distracted by worldly contentment that we would think there's no time for prayer, or there's no need for prayer. Because Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint 
upon his knees. And that's why the Apostle Paul brings his letter to the Ephesians to this grand finale with a rousing call to take up the sword, which is the word of God, and to go into battle on our knees in prayer. Because a church that is skilled in the use of this sword and a church that is constant in the practice of prayer is a church that will invade the kingdom of darkness and prevail against the enemy. I want you to notice something else that should be a great encouragement to us in verse 17. Did you notice in this verse that a new person comes onto the scene of battle to join us in this fight? Did you see what his name is? Precisely at the point when God is calling us to join him in going from defense to offense, that's when this new person shows up. The Holy Spirit comes onto the scene in verse 17. Notice the sword is called the sword of the Spirit, who is God, the third person of the Trinity. And prayer, what does Paul call prayer in verse 18? He calls it praying in the Spirit. Why is God bringing the Holy Spirit into the picture now? It's because he wants us to know that we are not alone in this battle. His spirit is with us to help us fight with faith and valor. And as long as the spirit of God is with us, we have every reason to be confident and no need to fear. So what I want us to look at together is how, to, how the church or how the spirit of God equips the church to fight this faith with faith, this fight with faith and valor. Let me say that again. How the Spirit of God equips the church to fight this good fight with faith and valor. And we're going to see two ways the Spirit of God helps us. Number one, the Spirit of God saves us and empowers us to speak the words of God. Now, it could be tempting. To take this phrase in the middle of verse 17, where it says, Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. It would be tempting to take this phrase and to launch now into a lengthy, systematic theology lesson on the power of the Scriptures. We could talk about how the scriptures are God-breathed because holy men of God wrote them as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We could talk about how the scriptures are without error, how they're authoritative, how they're useful, how they're sufficient, wonderful things about the scriptures. I could turn this into a sermon about the importance of reading the word of God, studying the word of God memorizing the word of God and meditating on the word of God day and night, all of which I agree with and all of which I hope you will do because you cannot wield the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, if you do not know the content of what is in the word of God. So I would urge us as a church to immerse ourselves in the scriptures. That's why the scriptures are woven into all of our ministries. Toward the end of his life, Newsweek did an interview with the Reverend Billy Graham, who was used so powerfully in his evangelistic ministry, and they asked him if he had any regrets from his long lifetime of fruitful gospel ministry, and I find what he said to be very instructive. He said, the greatest regret that I have is that I didn't study more and read more. 
He's talking particularly about the scriptures. He said, I regret it because now I feel at times I am empty of what I would like to have been. I have friends that have memorized great portions of the Bible. They can quote so much, and that would mean a lot to me now. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking Billy Graham might have read the Bible more than most of us. And he studied a lot. But as he got to the end of his life, he wished he had done even more. So get to know your sword that you might become skillful in its use. But I don't think that's the main point of this passage. I think we would be missing the main point of why the apostle lists the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God at this point in this passage, if we spent the rest of the sermon talking about the importance of reading the Bible. In order to understand why God puts the weapon of the sword of the Spirit into our hands, we've got to see the sword's connection to the piece of armor that preceded the sword of the Spirit, which is what? In verse 17, what comes before the sword of the Spirit? The helmet of salvation. And in order to see the connection between these two pieces, the helmet and the sword, we've got to go back to the prophet Isaiah, which I am sure Paul was immersed in, that he was reading as he thought about this whole passage. He's drawing from the prophet Isaiah to show us that the armor God clothes us in was first worn by our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's an important passage in Isaiah 59 where we read about the helmet of salvation. Let's put it on the screen. Here it says that God put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So here in Isaiah, the helmet of salvation is something that God puts on, and he puts it on on purpose. Because if we were to read the first 16 verses of Isaiah 59, we would see that God's people are so full of unrighteousness and so full of sin that they are utterly helpless to save themselves. And so God says they can't rescue themselves. I myself will come down, and I will be their salvation. So God puts puts on the helmet of salvation and comes to their rescue. But in Ephesians chapter 6, who's the one who is wearing the helmet of salvation? We are the people of God. He, He gives us the helmet of salvation to wear because he wants us to be assured of everything that he has told us in this book of Ephesians about how we've been saved by God. We've been forgiven through the death of Jesus. And that's because we've been loved by God and chosen by him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. And he predestined us to be adopted into his family. And because of his purpose to save us, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, what did God do? He made us alive together with Christ. And he raised us up with him. And he seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. That's our salvation. By grace, we have been saved through faith. This is not our own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. We boast only in Christ. And God wants us to wear this helmet of salvation at all times in the battle so that we will be assured that we are going to be kept secure in Christ until the day of final victory. We're wearing the helmet now. God's saying, I have saved you. 
But that's not all we learn from the passage in Isaiah 59. If you read further in that chapter, you'll see that after God puts on the helmet of salvation and comes to rescue his people, he also does something else. He gives his people his spirit and his word. After describing the salvation God brings his people, Isaiah says this in verse 21. Let's read this together in unison. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I've put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. So Isaiah is prophesying here that when God saves his people, he will then empower them by his spirit to speak his words. That's very important to understand this sword in the armor of God. As Lionel Windsor puts it, God's saved people are also God's spirit-empowered speaking people. God's saved people are also God's spirit-empowered speaking people. Not only do we have God's salvation, we also have God's word in our mouths. And you'll read throughout the New Testament depictions of Jesus as the one who has a two-edged sword coming from his mouth, signifying the power of the spoken word. And this fits the context of Ephesians 6, verse 17, perfectly. Because when Paul speaks of the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, he uses a different word for word than the word he normally uses. Normally, when Paul speaks of the word of God, he speaks of logos, the logos of God. But in this passage, he uses a different word, the word rhema. And the commentator Peter O'Brien describes the significance of this when he says that the word Paul is using, the word rhema, tends to emphasize the word as spoken or proclaimed, which means that Paul is referring here to the gospel. And he is stressing the actual speaking forth of the gospel message, which is given its penetration and its power by the Holy Spirit. So when Paul tells us to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, he is telling us to speak forth the message of the gospel into the darkness of Satan's kingdom and to do so empowered by the Spirit. Because the Spirit of God takes the word of God and uses that word like a sword to puncture the kingdom of darkness and to liberate people from Satan's captivity. This is the sword the Spirit wielded to save us out of the dungeon of our captivity to sin. That's what Sean and Roberto were testifying to in the waters of baptism today. The word of God is the weapon the Spirit uses to deal the death blow to the kingdom of darkness. Isn't that how Jesus defeated the devil during his temptation in the wilderness? He spoke the word of God. He trusted in the good news of God's protection and provision instead of entrusting himself to the false promises of Satan. And when Jesus said, it is written, the devil fled 
like a defeated dog with his tail between his legs. When we speak forth the word of God, we are actively dismantling Satan's kingdom. This gospel, when it is spoken, is active in saving people from death, from judgment, and from the dominion of the devil. I want to ask you, do you know of anyone in your life who has experienced being freed from captivity to sin and Satan through hearing the word of God being spoken? I would hope that that's the story of most of the people in this room. That as you have heard the word of God, you have been freed from sin, freed from captivity to the devil. And if that isn't your story yet, I would hope and pray that today as you hear the word, you would experience that freedom, that forgiveness. As you trust in Jesus, what he has done, dying on the cross to free you from the bondage of your sins, to cleanse you, to forgive you, and, to, and, and how Jesus was raised from the dead to give you newness of life. If you believe that message, you will be set free. But I want to read to you a story of someone whose life was transformed through the power of this word. Her name is Rosaria Butterfield. About 25 years ago, she was a professor of English and women's studies at Syracuse University in New York. She was adamantly opposed to Christianity and to the message of the Bible. But she met some Christians who showed her great hospitality. They invited her into their home over and over and over again over the course of a few years. And they were very kind and wise in the way they ministered to Rosaria. She could just see from the way they lived that the Bible had power in their lives and in their household. And so this English professor who hadn't read the Bible, who had only critiqued it, decided I should read this book for myself. And she describes what started happening. She said, I started reading the Bible in earnest with pen in hand and notebook in lap. I read the way a glutton devours I started to read the Bible the way I was trained to read a book, examining its textual authority, authorship, canonicity, and internal hermeneutics. I read the Bible like that the first year, arguing with its gender politics and its statements about slavery. But I kept reading it. Slowly and over time, the Bible started to take on a life and meaning that startled me. Some of my well-worn paradigms no longer stuck. As I studied the Bible, I found answers to my initial accusations. The Bible simultaneously encouraged and enraged me. After years and years of this, something happened. I just love this phrase. The Bible got to be bigger inside me. It became bigger inside me than I it overflowed into my world. I fought against it with all my might. I had read the Bible many times through and I saw for myself that it had a holy author. I saw for myself that it was a canonized collection of 66 books with a unified biblical revelation. And then the day came. She says, my hands let go of the wheel of self-invention. I came to Jesus alone, open-handed and naked. I had no dignity upon which to stand. 
as an advocate for peace and social justice, I thought that I was on the side of kindness, integrity, and care. It was thus a crushing revelation to discover that it was Jesus I had been persecuting the whole time. Not just some historical figure named Jesus, but my Jesus, my prophet, my priest, my king, my savior, my redeemer, my friend, that Jesus. And she's been living for him ever since. Friends, we could tell story after story like this. Do you recognize the power of this sword, of the spirit, which is the word of God? It's living, it's active, it cuts deep into us. And when God cuts us open with his word, he doesn't cut us open to leave us bleeding out on the table. He cuts us open to excise the the disease of sin and opposition and rebellion to him and then to heal us, to make us whole. He cuts us to reveal that we've been trusting in ourselves and to point us to Jesus, who is our righteousness, so that he can become our prophet, priest, king, savior, redeemer, and friend. So what a privilege it is to be a warrior who wields the sword of the Spirit, who speaks forth God's word into this world. And that calling is not just for a few elite Christians. That calling to be God's Spirit-empowered speaking disciple is for all of us. It's not just for professional pastors or evangelists. We all have different circumstances and different relationships and different ways we will do this. But we are all called to be disciples who take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and speak forth that word into the darkness of this world. But that is not easy to do, is it? There are so many obstacles in the way that Satan would put across our path to keep us from speaking the word. We need help. We need empowerment. We need strength. And that's why Paul doesn't end this passage by telling us, take up the sword of the Spirit and run boldly into battle. Instead, he says, take up the sword of the Spirit and drop immediately to your knees because you need help from God. And that's our second point this morning. The Spirit of God moves us into battle on our knees. Beginning in verse 18, Paul starts talking about prayer. And Paul spends more time talking about prayer in this passage than he does on any other piece of the armor. And the reason he does that is he wants us to understand that prayer is not just another piece of the armor. Prayer is foundational to the effectiveness of the whole armor. You cannot, cannot put on any piece of this armor without prayer. Because if you do not have prayer, you're not depending on God as your strength. You can think about it like this. Prayer needs to be happening at all times and in every way, Paul says in verse 18. Pray at all times in the spirit with every prayer and request. Without prayer, a Christian soldier is like a modern fighter plane with all its defensive shields and missiles and bombs attached to it, but with no electrical power. Theoretically, all the armaments will still work on this plane, but the pilot has no power to deploy the armaments. It might look like a fearsome fighter jet, but without the power, it's worthless. 
And it's the same way in the Christian life. Ian Duguid writes, There will be no powerful reality to your walk with God unless you are in intimate contact with your Heavenly Father. There will be no powerful reality to your walk with God unless you are in intimate contact with your Heavenly Father. The armor is not enough if you're not in close contact with God. And prayer is how you stay in close contact with God. When we pray, it makes all the difference in the world. An old saint said, prayer turns ordinary mortals into men of power. It brings power. It brings fire. It brings rain. It brings life. It brings God. And Paul doesn't give us a technique or a formula for prayer here. He simply says, never stop. Just keep on praying. Make it like breathing. Live your life continuously in God's presence so that you are mindful always that you are with him and he is with you. Let prayer be the constant expression of the entirety of yourself to God. Talk to God about your struggles, your feelings, your desires. He sees everything about you anyways, so consciously invite him into your life. Nothing in your life is off limits to prayer. You can pray about anything. There's never a moment, never a situation in which prayer is inappropriate. Pray at all times. Pray about everything, Paul says. And the most important phrase in verse 18 is the phrase, in the Spirit. Because that's where Paul connects us to the gospel. He says, pray in the Spirit at all times. He's echoing a gospel blessing that we heard earlier in Ephesians 2.18. If you would just look back there in your Bibles. In Ephesians 2.18, Paul says, he names all three persons of the Trinity. He says this, For through him, who is Christ, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. What that means is, Jesus died on the cross to kill the hostility that once kept us separated from God and separated from one another. That hostility has been removed through the blood of Jesus Christ. And now that Jesus has removed that hostility, God no longer wants us living on opposite sides of the fence from one another. He wants us closely connected to each other, and God no longer wants us living as if he is distant from us. He wants us to live knowing that he is near, and he wants us to draw near. God desires nearness with his people so much that he has come to dwell in us by his spirit. And it is his spirit who moves us to pray to him and call him our father. Listen, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the gift of the Holy Spirit. This gift of the Holy Spirit is not just for a few special Christians who are really close to God. The gift of the Holy Spirit is for all of us. Because the Spirit dwells in you, Jesus says you can pray to God as your Father, knowing that you've been adopted into his family. And whenever you pray, you can know that you are welcome in his presence. You're not a nuisance to your Father. He loves to hear your voice. He loves to hear you tell him about your day 
What made you glad? What made you sad? What makes you afraid? What makes you angry? He loves to ask, hear you asking him to help you. He's delighted whenever you come to him. He's not a distant de deity. He cares about every detail of your life. And he especially wants to strengthen you for the battle we face in this world. So the devil is going to do all that he can to interfere with our prayer lives. He's going to throw temptations and accusations and distractions and diversions across our path. Anything to keep us from expressing our need for God. Anything to keep us from drawing near to God in prayer. That's because in the words of Samuel Chadwick, Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. So Paul says, persevere in prayer. Stay alert in it, verse 18, with all perseverance and intercession for the saints. And above all, as you pray for God's people, pray especially for the ministry of the gospel, for the word as it goes forth from the mouths of the people of God into the world, because it is this word that God is going to use to destroy the kingdom of Satan and to build up his kingdom. Pray for the evangelistic witness of the church. Pray for the preaching of the word. You know, I, I agree with Spurgeon. It takes two elements to make the preaching of the word powerful and effective. It takes a preacher who has been filled up with the presence of God through prayer, but that's not all it takes. It takes a congregation that is pregnant with expectancy because you have been praying in advance for the ministry of the word as it goes forth. And Spurgeon told his congregation that if you, God's people, would pray more earnestly. He said, I could preach the same sermons that I'm preaching to you right now, but they would have 10 times the power. And I believe that that is true. If we would come with prayerful expectancy, the word of God would have such power in our lives because there, there is no limit to the power of God's word, but our hearts need to be conditioned to hear the word and to delight in it. Isn't it interesting that the Apostle Paul who is writing this letter while he is chained up by a guard in a Roman prison or under house arrest, as he writes these words, Paul doesn't say, pray for me that I might be released from my imprisonment. He doesn't say, pray for me that my life would become more comfortable again. What does he ask prayer for? It's verse 19. He says it twice. Pray for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. He's saying, pray that I might take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and deliver it and ask that I would do it boldly. I love the way he ends at the end of verse 20. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. Because there's only one way to preach the word of God, and that's with boldness, with confidence, with courage, because the word of God is powerful. So that's what we're going to do now as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. We're going to spend a few minutes in prayer together, and I'd like you to just keep your Bible open here to this passage as I lead you in prayer. 
The Lord's Supper is for God's people who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're not someone who's yet trusting in Jesus, please don't take the Lord's Supper this morning. But know that Jesus is a living Savior and he is for you. And he welcomes and receives everyone who recognizes, I'm a sinner, I need Christ. And he will save you if you come to him. But if you are a believer in Christ this morning, think about what the Lord's Supper represents. It's about our oneness with each other because of our union with our Lord. He's connected us to himself, and in doing that, he's connected us to one another. So as we come to the Lord's table, we shouldn't just be thinking of Jesus and me. We should be thinking of Jesus and his church and myself and how we're all related together. That's what the apostle is doing at the end of Ephesians here. He's showing his heart for the people of this church. He talks about Tychicus, and I I love the way he speaks of him, our dearly loved brother. Shouldn't we talk that way about one another? Our dearly loved brother and faithful minister, faithful servant in the Lord. He doesn't hesitate to affirm. He's sending Tychicus so that the people can hear how Paul's doing and and find out what he's about these days. So as we come to the Lord's table this morning, I want us to pray for brothers and sisters in Christ in our orbit, people who need to be encouraged, people who are suffering right now. And I want us to pray especially that in their adversities, in their sufferings, they would be emboldened to speak forth the message of the gospel. So would you join me in prayer? And as I pray, think about a brother or sister in Christ in your life who needs encouragement. Father, we lift up our brothers and sisters to you. We thank you that as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we are one body. We are knit together. And so we pray for encouragement, Lord. We lift up names of people to you right now that we know are suffering. As Anna has already led us meaningfully in prayer, we, we bring members of your body to you, Lord, and we ask, strengthen us in our adversities. Help us to remember that your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood. And we pray most of all, Lord, that we, your people, would be emboldened to speak forth your word in the darkness of this world. We pray we would not shrink back, that we would not act as if our sword is dull, but that we would believe in the power of your word and speak it boldly as we should. Lord, as we gather around Thanksgiving tables this week, we pray that your word would be on our lips as your spirit is in our hearts, and that we would talk about you and the wonderful things you've done. Lord, we turn now and we pray for the persecuted church around the world. Think right now, believers, about people that you're aware of who are suffering greatly because of their allegiance to Christ. Father, we pray for the church in Iran right now. We thank you that it's the fastest growing church in the world. We are so grateful for the way your gospel is breaking through the darkness and opening hearts and you're building your church in Iran. 
but it's in the face of much hostility and an oppressive regime. So we pray you'd give your servants boldness in Iran to speak forth the gospel, to wield the sword of the spirit, and that the kingdom of darkness would be defeated and Christ's kingdom would be built. We pray also, Lord, for brothers and sisters in North Korea right now. I recently met a sister in Christ from North Korea who suffered so greatly under that oppressive regime and now is doing all she can to bring freedom to the North Koreans so that they can be reunited with their family and neighbors in the South and that the gospel message can go forth into the North with freedom. Oh God, we lift our hearts to you. We pray you would break down the barriers to the gospel in North Korea. And we pray that you would bring down that oppressive regime and allow your word to go forth with freedom. Lord, as we take this bread and this cup, we are longing for your kingdom to come in, in the world and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we look at the blessings that you mention at the end of this letter. In verse 23, you speak of peace to the brothers and sisters. And we thank you that this cup, this bread, represents to us the reconciling death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And through his death, we have peace with God. The, the war is over. We are now united to him. And we are one with one another. And we thank you that you've also given us love Love for you, and you've poured out your love in our hearts along with faith. And Father, as we survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, and as we see from his head and his hands and his feet sorrow and love flowing mingled down from that cross, we pray that love so amazing, so divine, would call forth from us and undying love for the Lord Jesus Christ. You end this letter saying, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with undying love. And oh, Father, we want that grace in our lives. We want to love Jesus with undying love. We love because he first loved us. So impress his love upon our hearts as we eat and as we drink. Refresh us in the gospel, we pray, through the sacrament of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.